Do you like beer? Do you want to learn how to make your own beer? It's time for Just Brew It, brought to you by Niagara Tradition Home Brew. Here's your host, Jeremy White and Bert Deister. Welcome to Niagara Tradition's Just Brew It on ESPN 1520. Jeremy White and Bert Deister here with you on uh, ESPN 1520. Happy Saturday, happy brewing season, yes. happy fall, happy comfort food, comfort beer. Good sleeping weather. Great sleeping weather. Good chilling weather. Mm-hmm. It's always easier with fermentations to provide a little heat than try to provide some cool. So if mm-hmm. you're trying to work on some fermentations, it's kind of just like a human. You can make heat. You can't really make that much cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes everything a little bit easier. Well, we've got lots to get to today. You said you wanted to get right into the meat of uh, of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll quickly just... Housekeeping, anything you announcements you want to make real quick? We have the Omega yeasts in stock. Those have been very popular, um, and so people are just finding out that we have them. Um, and so if you're coming in to make a recipe, you might want to take a look at their available strains. Maybe even give us a call and have us set them aside because we got another order on the way, and we're starting to run out of a couple varieties. Um, we can put a yeast aside for you, um, but a lot of people are deciding to build a recipe around these new, new Omega yeasts. The big ones that they have are the Quek yeast, which are those uh, kind of, we'll say, like Frisian, almost like farmhouse ales that we were talking about like weeks and weeks ago. Um, and then they also have the Conan, which is the heady topper yeast, and then the Super Saison or Saison Monster, uh, which has been really popular. It has the kind of forgiving temperature range of the French Saison, but all the flavor of the Belgian Saison, which is notably not forgiving. Um, so those have been really popular. And if you're thinking about making a beer, you may want to take a look at those strains and you may want to build a beer around some of those kind of unique yeasts that they have. So that's something to get to. We also still have those 64-ounce uh, amber PET growlers, and we've been reordering them steadily. And so we notice a lot of people coming in to pick up a growler are choosing to go to the plastic as soon as they see it over the glass. So we don't really have to sell them on everything. Everybody looks at it and kind of sees all the advantages that you could imagine. Um, and so those have been really popular as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So that it? We're rolling already? We, we can roll okay. already. We okay. can roll already. I, I know you we, want we to got other stuff quick. we can talk about, too, if we need some filler. And so this week I wanted to talk about green versus amber bottles. Um, and to be quite honest, this is something that people have sent us in as a question, and I've kind of skipped over, ignored. We kind of did one on, like, best storage practices, you know, how to sell your beer. But I kind of skipped over the direct question of green versus amber bottles, and finally somebody hammered me in person about it. So we're going to talk about it today. Now, most beer enthusiasts realize that a green bottle will cause skunky beer, and that's true. The brown in our beer bottles uh, will help bend or block UV light. Um, and that protects the beer. The UV light acts as a catalyst, um, as a reaction between the alpha acid and the hops and sulfur compounds from the barley and from the yeast. Um, When those two react, they produce a compound very similar to skunks for when they uh, spray. So it's it's similar to their self-defense kind of uh, chemical there. Um, And so why do we still see beer in clear or green bottles. Obviously, we see a lot of Eastern European uh, macros in green bottles. We see a lot of like Western European beers come in clear bottles or sometimes clear and painted, just like some of the Belgian bottles. And so if it's a risk for brewers, why do they still do it? And it has a little bit to do with the history of the, the breweries that are still using it and a little bit to do with the kind of history of beer itself. So 
sorry, Mike, who bugged me most recently about this, <laughs> but we're going to we're going to take a long journey around the direct answer here and kind of first talk about a history of beer in bottles. Um, beer beer has been around much longer than traditional bottles. And so we've heard stories about how beer was at one time stored and so was wine in a fish's swim bladder. So when they would uh, gut the fish, they would take out the swim bladder, which is this heavy air sac in the top of the fish. It's also where we get isinglass from. And they would put the beer into this sack. Um, and the isinglass would actually clarify the beer that they put into the sack. Um, and we still use that as a traditional clarifier in English ales, but most of all in wine still today. Um, other things they would do is they would keep beer in pottery. So you would have like a pottery, maybe with a narrow neck, probably not, and you would brew beer in that, maybe pour it over to another one, and that would be its storage and its serving vessel as well. Well, around the 16th century, um, bottles began to pop up. The bottles would be hand-blown, and they would be almost equal to works of art as they would be uh, kind of functionality. They had narrower necks than they were, so you could you know, possibly stick a cork in there. Um, but because they were handmade, because they were blown, they could not handle any pressure. Um, they were also not cheap which was fine by the time. So kind of, you know, a standard man was not used to being able to bring a beer anywhere. And so these were an item of luxury uh, for kind of the upper class. And they were also uh, quite expensive. So that kind of priced out a lot of people. They're also breakable. So it's not like they were, this would be a you know permanent investment. Um, it could break. Um, wasn't always, you know, applicable for most people. Um, so this would be, again, a luxury. So if you were upper class and you didn't want to drink your ale, you know, down at the pub with everybody else, you could get a glass vessel. You could have them fill it up with ale out of the cask, wooden cask ale, not too much pressure, and then bring it back home to, you know, drink in the luxury of your own home in peace and quiet. Then in the late 17th century, um, brewers were still serving beer and ale that were flat, and they began to put it into these hand-blown bottles, and they were a little more available. Um, but these were only for export. So if you were drinking a local beer, you would absolutely still take a, like a pitcher down to the like local brewery and have them fill it up or just drink there. You wouldn't take a bottle home to save. You would just grab your beer with your market you know, items every single day. Um, these beer bottles that were all, they were a little more mass produced, still could not handle any pressure. Uh, and so it could be susceptible to blowing up, throwing a cork, or just kind of stress fracturing on their own. So they weren't exactly reliable either. So beer was pretty much at this point, uh, up until at least the mid 19th century, was really just a local thing. So unless you were buying like a really expensive high alcohol, so like some of these original Russian imperial stouts or... Um, like, you know, stout porters, um, and you were out of the area, this is the only time you'd really see bottled beer. So you had to be upper class, you had to be traveling away from home, and you had to be lucky enough that the place actually had some cold storage, because if they couldn't keep this bottled beer cold, it would explode. Now, during the industrial age, during the mid-19th century, the first kind of Iron molds for bottles, particularly beer bottles, was patented in the United States. Um, and this allowed bottle and glass production to increase. The glass was also of a much higher quality, more uniform size and shape and thickness, most importantly. And these bottles could finally hold pressure. And now this doesn't mean that the beer that was put into there was purposely carbonated. But if it carbonated a little bit 
it wouldn't blow up in your face. And so that was kind of nice. And they already had the idea that beer could be light struck. So these original bottles were blown, or I'm sorry, were pressed in black or brown to kind of prevent light struck from the beer. So the first original bulk made beer bottles were actually brown and black. So we're already aware of the effect that light could have um, on the beer and they, you know, reflected that. If you fast forward now to 1870, and Louis Pasteur beginning his work with Wine Stefaner Brewing Company, and he found that micro, so a good section of his work was actually done working with beer, or his, we would say applications were onto beer, and that the microbes were actually causing the spoiling of the beer and or the overcarbonation. With these better bottles, he could use controlled heat to kill any microbes inside the beer while not ruining the beer, not taking away any flavors, not causing any more Maillard reaction, but actually keeping the beer, um, you know, microbe-free. And this, this was revolutionary. And it meant that you could do a little bit more conditioning in the bottle or in a separate tank and put the carbonated beer into the bottle, and you didn't have to worry about it blowing up. And it was a little bit more shelf-stable. It didn't have to be kept in a cold cellar, um, all the time. And one of the first beers we talk about the seeing this all the time is in 1899, Notting Hill Brewing Company of West Lumpton produced a sparkling dinner ale, um, which would look, would be the first beer that you would ever see that would really look like a modern beer. It came in a, a bottle that had no sediment. It was carbonated. It was clear. You could pop the cap off. Um, you could keep it at you know room temperature, then chill it down right before drinking. It was the first time that we had something that we know as like a modern beer. And, and that was really like revolutionary. And it, it really wasn't that long ago. You think about it that, you know, in the you know, mid-1800s that um, there was no option for a potable beer, something you could take home, put in a cupboard, and drink when you wanted to. And so that really was kind of revolutionary mm -hmm. at that point. And it, it did kind of bring, bring, we'll say, exotic beer and better beer to the masses. So a big Very development, solid. obviously. Yep. Right? And, you know, it's funny. We think about all the things, all the ways that beer evolved, not just like the, um, uh, the how you would make it, but how you get different beers to different places, which would change how they make it. And, like, you know, it's the evolution, I guess it's the evolution of beer. Yeah. And bottles obviously have a big, a big part to play in that. Yeah, and, and I guess the other thing to beer being kind of a global or, or why it stuck around, you know what I mean? Right. We, we, I don't think in our modern society if beer was still something you had to pick up every single day that would be as popular as a beverage as it is. Maybe homebrewing would be a lot more popular because right. of it. So you didn't have to leave the house one extra time. Right. But at the time, it was just worked out, and as you know, markets kind of changed, beer had to follow. So why do we still have green bottles today? Um, and this actually comes from what colors the glass. During the World War, um, sulfur, iron, carbon, what is used to make brown glass was in high demand. And if you think about it, a lot of countries had like steel and iron drives. You know what I mean? They're pretty much all precious metals. Brass, too. Brass was a big one for uh, shell casings. Um, and so during the World Wars, it, they really couldn't, you know, put... Uh, expensive materials that were needed for a war effort into beer bottles anymore. It, it just wasn't really applicable in, in any way. Um, but they kind of came up. So the bigger breweries, the more established ones that were kind of producing more premium beer, uh, used chromium to make the bottles green. 
Um, and so it's actually another metal that is used in, in the green bottles as well to kind of give them that hue. Now you can use a little bit of the chromium, which was not being used as for much stuff. And you could probably actually get it as a byproduct in the, the chroming process. And you could use a little bit to make a, little, a lot of color change compared to copper, compared to iron, compared to cobalt, the other um, metals that are used to color glass. Um, this kind of made a huge difference. So a lot of these, especially Eastern European companies, switched over to green glass. And we think of like Heineken, we think of uh, you know, Warsteffiner, uh, Pilsner Urkel. A lot of these switched over. A lot of English breweries switched over to clear glass. Belgian breweries switched over to painted glass. And they still kind of keep um, that tradition alive today. So it kind of it, it became a signature of their brand even though it was done initially out of necessity. And having these kind of more dressed bottles, especially with the green, kind of uh, was a sign of that your brewery had a little more prestige. Um, and so after, they always kept the green. It just stuck with. All right. More on the other side? Let's more get a break the other side. Yeah. All right. More to this story. Uh, and also, we mentioned the meat of the show. You also want to talk about meat at some meat. point. We're gonna, my mash. We're going to homebrew meat. Yep. Okay. That's on the other side of Niagara Traditions. Just brew it on ESPN 1520. Jeremy White here for Niagara Tradition Home Brewing Supplies. You're listening to Just Brew It, which means either you homebrew or you're thinking about it. Wherever you are in the process, Niagara Tradition Homebrew is your source for everything homebrewing. Do what I did. Get a starter kit, and you'll be well on your way. Niagara Tradition will be there to answer your questions, give you advice, and as I try to become a more seasoned brewer, I know I can count on Niagara Tradition to be there with the supplies and the advice I need. Niagara Tradition Homebrewing Supply, 1296 Sheridan Drive, near Military, in Tonawanda. Open Monday through Friday, 11 to 7, Saturdays, 10 to 4, and 24-7 at nthomebrew.com. Niagara Tradition Homebrew. Pay them a visit, and remember to just brew it. Back here on Niagara Tradition's Just Brew It on ESPN 1520, and we are going to uh, get to some meat in a minute, but first a little bit more on, uh, on bottles. So... For all of you who want to use your green bottles, go right ahead. Um, you should be keeping your bottles or best practice to keep them somewhere out of the light completely in a consistent temperature. So even though we have better sanitization techniques, it's still, and even though you can put it in brown bottles if you want to, um, it's still best practice to keep them out of the light, keep them in someplace cooler completely. It will be a lot better for your beer. Um, but you can absolutely use green bottles. Um, the only problem I'll warn people with is a lot of the green bottles that you'll buy um, are from Europe, or at least have a European standard top, and they may be a different size camp, but more likely they're not going to have the crown that a lot of your craft American beer bottles and homebrew bottles have. And that extra like lip on the bottom that sits about... Um, I would say three-quarters of an inch below the actual lip where the cap rests, allows your butterfly capper, the kind of American-style home bottle capper that's been around since pre-prohibition, um, to cap over your beer bottle to put it away. So unless you have a bench capper, you may want to look at those bottles first. You may want to try them out um, when they're you know, empty to make sure that your, your capper is actually going to cap them and it's not going to crack the neck of the bottle because it doesn't have that lip to grab onto. But you can absolutely use your regular bottles. Another thing that I think is kind of interesting from this history of the beer bottle is that really the bottle as we know it wasn't really around until that 1899. 
And then by the 1960s, bottles were already beginning to lose their place in the market big time. They started, so they, they kind of burst onto the scene, and then they began to lose market share to kegs and cans almost immediately, 70 years later. Now they're under attack again by, you know, growlers, crowlers, metal, and plastic bottles. So historically, in the history of beer anyways, the bottles might be a kind of flash in the pan. Not mm-hmm. that there was anything wrong with them. It's kind of almost like a, like CDs or something like that. You know what I mean? We progressed all this way to digital music, found this you know medium that worked in a you know format. While we still keep the format, we've lost the medium. And so while we're used to drinking pasteurized, clear, potable beer, you know what I mean? That the bottles allowed us to pasteurize beer in, um, that might not be what we see in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of something interesting to watch that the bottles really in the history of beer haven't been around that long and may be kind of moving out already. Right. I mean, most smaller breweries really kind of prefer crowlers before prefer cans. Right. Easier to recycle, a little more expensive up front, but less weight, less storage, absolutely. right? Like I mean, and, and I am a notorious digger on glass too. You know, I, I hate it in my fermenters. I, I hate it. I'm obviously pushing these plastic growlers. I'm a big fan of it. Um, it can break. If you do have a bottle bomb, now you have you know, glass shards flying. Um, so they're definitely the standard for the home brewer for now, but it's kind of interesting to see where that will go because yeah. there's a lot of disadvantages to them as well. All right. So is it time to get to the meat thing? Sure, sure, right. absolutely. <clears throat> I can tell you're excited about that. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to learn a lot right now. Sous vide, sous vide, is this what this is? Yes, it okay. is. so it's a French style of cooking uh, food. And so what you do is you take your uh, food. Now, it could be vegetables. It's most often kind of highlighted with big cuts of red meat. You put it in a vacuum bag, maybe with some spices, and then you cook it in a water bath. Now, this goes back to the Lewis Pasteur pasteurization, right? Now, so our, our USDA standards are based on some very short times. And so they, for the short times, they have to use some pretty high heat, right? So when you sous vide, you put your food into a vacuum bag and you put it in this circulating temperature-controlled water bath, and you can control the time. So what I did with it is I took my mash tun because, gee, surprise, a lot of homebrewers' mash tuns are temperature-controlled, water-recirculating vessels, right? I mean, you think about it, I have a grandfather, but even my natural gas system, which is kind of a Blickman-like hybrid system, is 15 gallons <clears throat> of temperature-controlled recirculating water. Um, and so I used one of my systems yesterday, and I put in steaks into a bag, and I soaked them for 129 degrees for two and a half hours, maybe a little bit longer. Then I took them out, and I put them in the refrigerator. When I took them out, so when I put them in, they had obviously no caramelization to them when I took them out, um, and they were still very pink. So they're absolutely pink, but you could tell in the vacuum bag they were just about falling apart already. There's still a whole steak. There's no burning. There's no moisture loss either. There's no drying out of the meat because it's been stuck inside this bag. There's no loss of flavor, but it has been perfectly slow-cooked. And so now all you need to do is take it out of the refrigerator a couple of minutes before you're ready and throw it on a searing hot pan or grill to give yourself a nice sear. And you have like perfectly cooked restaurant steak at home at your convenience whenever you're ready. 
And I, I just bring this up. This is something that I've done a, long, a few times before. I notice a lot of other like homebrewing magazines have put this out there. Now that everybody has these like grain frothers, the mash boil, or all this temperature controlled or, or pumps, really, you could even do this in a cooler if you're willing to kind of take out water almost like a decoction and reheat it if you need to over the course of two hours. But with all this temperature control, with all the brewers using pumps, you basically have high-end sous vide system. I looked at the, I did a quick Google of some of the sous vides out there. Now you can get some sous vide wands that are smaller that work with a crock pot, but the big systems, which are their own heater, their own temperature control, in their own, um, you know, pump, are right around the same price as a grain father, mm-hmm. and don't look like they're necessarily that much easier to use, or that much user friendly, or really that there's that much advantage to it. So if you're thinking about getting into sous vide, and you're also thinking about getting into home brewing, absolutely get like a home brew system with temperature control, so that you can also make beer with it because it was really quite easy. I would suggest anybody that has the equipment to do it, to give it a try. And it, so it's, you're basically, <clears throat> it's, it's basically like doing a mash, except the mash is a steak. Yes, exactly. It's just sitting in there. It's, you could watch the color change, like almost instantly, it's just a little bit lighter pink. And then slowly you just saw it start separating itself. So you saw all the short muscle fibers break and you just had the long muscle fibers holding it together all the fat had been rendered throughout the steak even though it was still looked very rare all the fat had been rendered so there was no big chewy hunks of fat a lot of them had a lot of it had like kind of come out of the bag so when i put the steaks in the refrigerator kind of recongealed around it but these were absolutely beautifully cooked steaks and it was less work than a normal steak Mm -hmm. so all i had to do was fill up my grandfather Literally take the bags, put them into the basket, just like a sous vide machine, lower the basket underneath the water level. Um, I preheated it first to 129 degrees. Um, there are a bunch of guides online where you can get all sorts of different times, temperatures, recipes. You can put vegetables in there and put in your spices and kind of infuse the vegetables. You can, you know, rub or, you know, marinate the steak and it will really kind of infuse the flavors there. And me and my buddy who were doing this, we're talking about this. You haven't hit a USDA pasteurization, but according to a lot of these guides, you kind of have slow pasteurized it. So it, it should be good. I'm not going to make any recommendations here, but we let it sit overnight in the refrigerator. And obviously I wasn't worried about that. You would let fresh meat sit overnight. But, it, you know, there shouldn't be any reason why you have it in a sealed, hermetically sealed, sanitized, pasteurized bag why you can't put it in there and let it marinate for a couple of days without the worry of a mess in the refrigerator or anything like that. Gotcha. So it was a nice use of the, the homebrew equipment um, used over for cooking as well. How long until we see, I'm, I'm half kidding here, beers made, you know, everything's going in beer. Meat There's beer? a chicken beer out there. There's a chicken beer? There, I can't remember who makes it. I've been offered it many times in I just can't. What? I can't bring myself to it. Well, all right. They take fried chicken, throw it into the mash. Scientifically, what is happening there? You're getting the bread. It's going to, you know what I mean? There'll be some conversion there. You're going to get the spice. I don't know how much chicken flavor you get, and you're definitely going to have a problem dealing with the fat. Right. You may as well take fat-free chicken stock and some breading and throw it in well, if you're trying to mimic it at home. That's the only thing I think you're going to taste in a long right. run. I mean, is it, what do they do with the chicken afterward? Do they eat it? 
I mean, I would. <laughs> right. I mean, beer can chicken is delicious. People love beer can mm-hmm. chicken. So, but that's obviously a little different. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm. I got to be honest. When you were talking about this sous vide, this sous vide and the steak at the bottom, I'm thinking like, well, I mean, what what would happen if you did it with a steak at the bottom? Um, I don't want. I think yeah. you'd have to do like pulled pork or sure. carnitas or something. Because I was already thinking about this, and I was really hoping to find uh, something that I could cook with the sous vide. Where I could hit a mash temperature, right. a little bit warmer. So you're kind of closer down to protein rest, which makes sense. You're breaking down protein in the meat, you're breaking down protein in the grain, and so you're closer in those 120s, maybe a little bit warmer. Um, but I couldn't find anything that I could double duty a mash or justifiably double duty a mash. Um, and after letting this go for two and a half hours, I didn't really have time in the morning to then reuse the water at least to throw in like to get a beer started. Although the water's still sitting there, I put a lid on the pot, so it's dechlorinated. It's, you know, kind of lost some minerals, so I could absolutely still use that water to brew to reuse it. But that was fun. You know what I mean? It was a little bit different. Um, I think if I do it next time, I'm going to pre-make a couple of more so that I can freeze them so that I already have these, like, steaks ready to go in the freezer, just saw them out and throw them on the grill. And so next time I'll do a little bit more. But this was a trial run, and it worked out really well. So if you if you have this brew system and you're not always finding the time or you want to try to get more out of it, you can absolutely also do it to make sous vide. Um, lots of fun. Really good. You all right? Really, really good steak. It will be hard for me to just, like, take a steak, throw it on the grill, wrap it in tinfoil, and set it off to the side. I don't think I'll be able to do that much anymore after doing this. You've got me interested. I'll tell you that. All right, that's uh, we're about out of time for us. Any last-minute things that you want to mention? Uh, kegging supplies. I've been big on kegging lately. I've learned a lot about um, the different types of taps you ha- you guys have, mm-hmm. which uh, can make life not just make life easier, but make beer last longer. I'm like I'm excited for my next party, so I can use the CO2 on the tap instead. Um, because we can buy better beer yeah, and it'll we have, last. We have a lot of people, um, and, and is, uh, beer drinkers get better educated. We've had a lot of customers coming in this time of year. They're right in the same spot as you. They're hitting up that 150 kit, which is, again, what we kind of converted your system over to, but $150, and you have a CO2-powered system. So if you have a refrigerator, if you have a cold corner of the garage, the basement this time of year, uh, you can keep draft beer around <clears throat> without a refrigerator, without a big tower tap for only 150 bucks. Um, so that system has been very popular. Very good. All right. Anything other housekeeping stuff? We're holidays. We're clear. We've always, yeah, no holidays. We're in the brewing system. We have uh, teach a friend to homebrew day coming up, but that's oh, not yeah, until yeah. that's about another month away. November seventh so is like around then. Always first November, yeah. first Saturday I think it's November, first or second Saturday in November. Okay, God, I should know that. All right, that'll do it for us though. Niagara Traditions just brew it here on ESPN fifteen twenty. Any episode you want to uh, catch up on, like our hop harvesting guide, is it too late? No, I, I I was at a. It's getting close. I was at it's a local brewery where they have hops up and that were they're bursting. Yeah, the vines. Yes. Were just, Mine might are getting close. Some of the, at the top where they get the most sun in the afternoon. Those ones, yeah, are probably gone. But the ones in the middle are still ready to go. I'm still trying to find some time to go out. There Hop harvesting guide August 11th. If you want to find that on demand, Jeremy White, Bert Teister, Happy Brewing. This has been Just Brew It on ESPN 1520. Beer, 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 beer. 
been listening to Just Brew It, brought to you by Niagara Tradition Home Brew. Whether you're a seasoned brewer or just want to get started, visit them at 1296 Sheridan Drive in Tonawanda or online at nthomebrew.com. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Just Brew It.